Chocolate Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. My name is Sam Hales and we've got two fantastic interviews coming up for you this afternoon. Just a reminder, this show is of course sponsored by Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that I help put together every month. And if you would like a free copy of the latest issue with reviews, interviews, features and more, why not head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Later on today, we're going to be hearing the editor of Youth and Children's Work magazine, Ruth Jackson, speaking to the daughter of the Archbishop of Canterbury, that's Catherine Welby-Roberts. Fascinating interview, do stick around for that. But first, we're digging into the archives for a repeat of a previous programme. This is Justin Briley, the editor of Premier Christianity magazine, in conversation with Greg Kokel. Let's listen in. Well, hello, welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Briley, and joining me today is Greg Kokel, who is the president of Stand to Reason Ministries. It takes various forms. There's a website, str.org, that you can visit, which will take you to all the relevant information. But really, it started out, didn't it, Greg, as a, a radio show, essentially, Stand to well, Reason? Well, I was on radio at the time we started Stand to Reason, and this is one of those things, Justin, and I don't know how you happen to get into radio yourself, but I never planned to be in radio. It was not part of my life tra- trajectory it was a it it's just a series of things that happened and as i look back now i think of it as as uh, as blooming where i was planted mm-hmm. i was just taking the opportunities that were there in front of me and and making good use of them trying to be faithful with what i had and they led to other things now as i look back i can see this <laughs> incredible plan that unfolded but it was the plan in the mind of god not in my mind i had been doing some radio things in the 80s as a guest on the uh, local ABC affiliate in Los Angeles, and there you had a Jewish talk show host, a Jewish rabbi, a Roman Catholic priest, and a Protestant minister. And so the four of us would mix up on spiritual topics on Sunday night from 10 to midnight. Right. And people would call in. And so there was kind of a, you know, odd situation where I had to defend the faith in that kind mm. of context. And, and so I was getting my feet wet there a little bit, and that worked out. And then I got asked to do um, a show uh, in with the local Christian station because an opportunity opened up. And so I did commercial radio for eight years for them, uh, three hours Saturday and three hours Sunday, talk call-in talk radio. And then about four years into that enterprise is when we decided to do Stand to Reason. Now, if you want to start an organization, you know, the best way to do it is to have already have name name recognition or uh, some kind of enterprise that can springboard you uh, forward. And this is exactly what happened. Of course, not my plan, but God's plan. And so that really helped to get Stand yeah, to Reason going. Absolutely. This is was all happening in, in California. That's right. In the States where you're from. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the tanned skin. We can see that you're used to some sunshine more than we get here in the UK. Yeah, well, usually I get my tan from some other state. Like I go to Alabama and go fishing and then people say, look at the tan from California. I said, I got that on your lake out here. But uh, it's I don't lay out in the sun, I guarantee you. Take us back to early days, though. Did you grow up in a Christian family? I, I didn't. Um, that's the way I'd qualify it now. We did mm. grow up in a religion. Uh, we were Roman Catholic, um, five kids, and uh, my mom and dad. And so, but when we were, when we all kind of came of age, we all went in our own directions. This was in the early 60s, mid 60s for me. So that by the time uh, I was able to think for myself, I was rejecting all of that stuff that I had learned. And then I was embracing the counterculture of the 60s, largely imported from the UK, by the way, (laughs) uh, by four of your musicians that came to be quite famous. And we're we're a lot of fun. We all love them, of course. the Beatles, and uh, but that there was a huge shift going on in our culture and the way we thought about these things, and so I was embracing a lot of the ideas of the age and mm. the, uh, the 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 
free love and the, you know, get rid of God and morals are relative and all of these things that just seem so good and convenient, actually, yeah, yeah. at the time when you're a young man exploring your world for the <laughs> yeah. first time. Um, and it wasn't until um, I was 23 that I actually started taking Jesus seriously. And when I, I did, and it was my younger brother, Mark, who um, who really had the biggest impact on me, though a number of things happened. It was Mark kept kind of chipping away at it. Um, <laughs> earlier, somebody said eating up and referred to me, you know, eating an atheist for lunch or something. No, I would, I would just <laughs> nibble away. That's all I do. I wouldn't just jump in and take a huge bite. And that's what he did. He just kept nibbling away at me. And uh, in the fall of 1973, uh, that's when I, I realized I, I, it was it was right and it was time to make a decision about this. And I uh, became a Christian and a follower of Christ at that time. And then a whole lot of other things happened very quickly that set me on a certain trajectory of um, a relative safety for me as a Christian because there are all kinds of crazy ways people who first receive Christ sure. can go. Yeah. And I got a bunch of good people around me oh, and, and good, stayed around me and, and put yeah. the boot in my pants many times. And so that, that helped me along since then. So uh, over the course of time, as you say, the, the radio ministry developed. Mm-hmm. Um, you started to take on this um, role as an apologist mm-hmm. specifically. Uh, It'd be interesting to know how that's developed, because when you first started, I guess the the new atheist movement as we know it wasn't sort of on the no. agenda quite as no, much. No, what what no. were the issues you were dealing with? Was it, was it things like Mormonism, other well, I, well I, I, my and... I don't I don't really migrate towards the so called. <laughs> cult or counter-cult ministries. They don't even call them cults anymore because it's such a pejorative word. It just creates more problems. But let's say the Christian lookalikes that aren't really Christian, (laughs) you know, and that would be LDS and Jehovah's Witness. There are groups that focus on that mainly, but I never did that. That's a specialty. Mm. My my approach as a generalist, that's where my interests uh, lie, was that if you understand truth well— um, then you you can deal with the counterfeits if you're willing to ask a few questions and pay attention. So you can stick with the the orthodox teaching and 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 navigate there fairly well. Though I'm very glad for the people who specialize in that kind of thing. Um, but I was just just more of a generalist then. Not only were there not the new atheists, there wasn't atheism around, but it hadn't been a surge. The new atheists were kind of a surprise when they came, say, two thousand three, four, five, right in there. The, mm. They they just launched out with their books. Um, I think kind of a, a, a bouncing off of what happened in, in two thousand one in the states and the attack that we experienced on September eleventh. Because at that point, the mantra became for many atheists like Richard Dawkins that well we need to counter religion. You know that, that he has that. It's to... dangerous. Absolutely. This is yeah. the new message. Yeah. The new atheists' new message is not new arguments. <laughs> They certainly are anything clever. In fact, they are not as clever as the more thoughtful philosophical atheists of the 20th century, say, people like Bertrand Russell from your country Mm. and others, A.J. Ayer. Uh, But they're a lot more attitude. And uh, they are, they're also more populist, uh, and so they, they write books, they go on TV, they go on radio, and they t- extend their message. But they're angry, and they're angry because they don't think religion is just wrong, false. They think it's uh, dangerous because it was religious people who flew those planes into the Twin Towers in New York City. And, uh, and so anybody, and this is kind of the odd way of looking at it, anybody who thinks their religion is correct— is as dangerous as those jihadists mm. who thought their religion was correct. And so consequently, um, this this gross overgeneralization of fundamentalism kind of happened, and, and a lot of people got really bugged. Yeah. Ironically, and this is something you can't appreciate, Justin, I don't think, being here in the UK, but um, very soon after 9-11, um, Islam ad- was adopted as having most favored religious status in the States. That is, it became the religion that you couldn't speak ill of. Right. Uh, and uh, and whole administrations adopted uh, strategies so they weren't saying, they weren't putting the word Muslim and terrorist together in the sure. same sentence. Mm. And and you'd mention something about Islam being dangerous, and they say, no, this is a, Islam is a peaceful religion and whatever. So the, the culture, generally speaking, took on this kind of attitude, well, you can't go after Muslims and complain about the religion. And, and uh, another word was came up in the discussion, and that's Islamophobic. 
if you objected to Islam, you're Islamophobic. Mm. It's a mm. foolish name calling, but this is what Americans do a lot. Yeah. And and by contrast, Christians became the dangerous group. It's just the craziest thing in the world because Christians are li- are likely to pray for you. You know that's the most harm they're going to do to you. But this is the way it's characterized in the press and by the I mean, left. I mean, I states. do get the impression that that in the states, um, coming from a UK perspective. When I speak to atheists who are in the States, they seem to feel that they their their role there is to somehow combat some kind of religious right that's kind of got this power base that is infringing on their rights. As, as Now, we don't quite have this same right, kind of cultural yeah. issue here mm-hmm. in the UK where, where there's right. not so much of a Correct. sort of – There is this thing, this historical thing, because – as a point of historical fact, the, the, the American experiment was grounded in a biblical Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview, and virtually all of the signers of the Constitution were publicly sworn Christians, 51 of 55. Ben Franklin wasn't. But, so you have these deeply committed, uh, not just religious people, but, but Christian people who build an enterprise grounded in their Christian worldview. And I think this is one of the reasons it's done so well. Now, in the last 50 years, of course, that's changed tremendously. We we don't uh, we, we're in a Christian culture in the sense I just described, and then in a post-Christian culture. Now we are in largely an anti-Christian culture, and I think generally speaking, though most people acknowledge. Uh, uh, um, associate themselves with Christianity, the vast majority, maybe 75 percent, um, still the cultural elite um, is very put off by mm. Christianity and Christian principles. And so there, so there is this, I think, largely manufactured concept of this battle between the sure. left and the religious right. Look at religious people are citizens. We get to have a say, too. Mm. We get to vote our conscience as well. But the minute we try to get engaged in this, then people raise concerns about so-called separation of church and state and as if and to disenfranchise, I think, our voice. Um, but uh, I think the, the trend is really the other way. Secularism really well, I mean, really when reigns. it comes to trends, you know, you've visited Europe and the UK a number of times in, in the course of the last several years. And Europe by and large, you could say, is kind of somewhere ahead of America in terms of secularization Absolutely. and so on. And mm-hmm. and so do you think that basically America is kind of following a trend that Europe's been starting? So far, I think it is. And, and, and um, I mean, I think that Europe can be kind of a crystal ball for us. If we adopt European sensibilities about a whole host of things, including economics, um, then we are going to have the same kind of problems that the uh, European Union has. And uh, this, it seems to me ought to put the brakes on for people. But um, as one of my friends put it, leftism, which entails a whole bunch of stuff, not just politics, leftism is a religion. And it drives these people towards a European model, even if that is not the thing that's been successful. Why are people trying so hard to get into the States? And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back and stick my nose in the air here, but the fact is is that the, the Americans have done quite well in the last 200 years, and I think there's a reason for this. It had to do with the worldview that drove the enterprise. Europe has been going in a different direction with a different sensibility, and their economics, etc., are also moving in a different direction. And I don't know why any American would want to, to find Follow that lead. When it comes to the religious state of Europe and the UK, you know, I'm sure the many of your spiritual heroes came from the UK yes, in right. previous centuries. Right. Uh, William Wilberforce comes immediately yeah, to mind from your some country. of the reformers and and others from uh, yeah, around Europe. We're back way yeah, back when, right? Absolutely. Now, what what do you say, sort of, from where your perspective is to to, to the fact that we're now in this situation mm-hmm. where? church going is at an all-time low mm-hmm. in the UK. Well, we we stand on the sh- at America, we stand on the shoulders of of Brits and other Europeans who came before us and uh, to whom we owe so much ideologically. Uh, this is just one of those ironies of history that the countries like uh, Germany and the Reformation and it well all over, you can just go everywhere in Germany, places where there was such a robust 
voice for God and had a salutary effect on everything, now we see those abandoning that completely. And so this is one of the spiritually deadest parts of the of the world. It it, it saddens me, and, and, it, and, it, and my heart goes out to Christians in this circumstance, and I do participate coming over here training as much as mm-hmm. I can uh, in, in on the continent and here in the UK to try to help Christians face this difficult situation. But um, there's it is it is not uncommon for spiritually robust cultures to forget and then look at turkey turkey was asia minor you know this is where paul planted mm-hmm. all the churches mm-hmm. for example 2000 years later it's a muslim country so uh, this is a warning sign to us that we have to pass the baton we have to do what paul did with timothy and second timothy guard the gospel pass the baton you know fight the good fight Coming back to your ministry in the States, uh, talk us through what an average show might be like mm-hmm. on Stand to Reason for those yeah. who maybe have never encountered yeah. the broadcast before. Well, we have three hours of live broadcasting, and uh, the the I start the show with commentary. So I'll start out talking about something that interests me. Or a, a, an it, item in the news or it, something it like that. It may be, yes. Mm. It, it may not be. It, it may be an experience I had on Justin <laughs> Brierley's show. In fact, I've been taking notes so I can... Um, so I, I, but I think if it's of interest to me in the general area that our show covers, it's going to be interesting to our audience. Plus, if I'm, th- that I'm interested in, it's going to bring a little liveliness to yeah, the discussion. Yeah. So so uh, I'm going to start with some commentary. And the, the goal of my commentary is largely to equip Christians to think more carefully about their convictions. I, I want to help them to see a certain angle. So uh, I've done a broadcast here with you. We had some challenges, and I might talk a little bit about those challenges and how I responded to them, because I know our people are going to encounter something similar. And so that's a way of kind of setting up the show. Now, in the meantime, people are calling in and getting in the queue, and then we I just start pushing buttons and taking callers for the rest of the show. Now, we have one-hour segments, and what I often will do with the with the second hour is the same as the first hour, the same pattern. Uh, that is, I'll start out with some commentary and then I'll take calls. And callers can call in on anything. They don't have to call in on what I just spoke of. In fact, many of them don't know what I said because they're on the line while I'm saying yeah, yeah, it, yeah. you know. Uh, but they have their own questions and sometimes challenges, sometimes skeptics or atheists. Maybe 10 or 15% of our calls are like that. But most of the time, they are followers of Christ that are saying, Gosh, I'm in this tough situation. I've been offered this hard challenge. How do you suggest mm. I maneuver in the circumstance? And I'm using my words carefully here, Justin, because I, it is not just, in our view at least, it's stand to reason. It's not just enough to give information. We don't want to just give information. We want to give uh, we want to incarnate that in a person we call it an ambassador. We want them to have knowledge, but we want them to have wisdom in, in artfully maneuvering, and we want them to have the kind of character that commends the message. So I'm hoping that um, when I'm giving them an answer, I'm giving them some of those tactical tips as well. Occasionally we'll have interviews, and we'll have an author on for an hour or something like that, but uh, most of the time it's caller-driven show. Yeah, and when it comes to, as you say, inculcating uh, this sense of reason defense of the faith and so on do you feel you're rectifying an imbalance that has existed up till now in american christianity that a lot of people are very feeling driven in the way they think yes i I think the imbalance is 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 two two types of imbalance one i think that american christians are fairly shallow in their understanding of christianity and yes feelings driven would be the alternative instead of having substance they have these feelings about it. Nothing wrong with feelings. I, you know, feelings make life delicious, but careful thinking makes life safe, theologically as well. And so uh, Christians, if insofar as we're followers of Christ, we're representing a Christian worldview in an exceedingly, increasingly hostile environment, it's important for us to be able to, to, to address those issues. So we need more depth so that's one thing. But then the other thing is it's not just been shallow, but it's also been shrill. <laughs> and I think this is what the atheists are, are you mentioned are objecting to, those American Christians, the political force, shrillness. Now, um, I don't think we're quite as shrill as they characterize us, but I do think that this has been a problem where we've s- substituted kind of noise and attitude for substance. A lot of people going on the Internet to see interactions will see that too. And this is shameful, I think. And so when 
Peter tells us to defend the faith in First Peter 3, he says to do with gentleness and reverence. When Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy uh, to, to guard the gospel, he says, don't be quarrelsome, but be patient when wronged, with kindness correcting mm-hmm. those people who are in opposition. So these are character virtues that are really important for, the, for making the process compelling. And I think that's what we've fallen down in that as American Christians as well. So what Sandra Reason is trying to do is to, to try to help uh, contribute to the correction in both of those areas, having more substance and also having more winsomeness and attractiveness in the, in the way we engage. So this is your ministry, but on a personal level, when it comes to your own spiritual input, how, yeah. how do you get yourself prepared for doing a radio show for, for you know, when you're going to be teaching and teaching apologetics yeah, and so uh, on? I, 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 in, in a certain sense, I prepare very little for the radio show in terms of content because as long as I have a couple of notes here uh-huh. that uh, that can trigger some thoughts, then I can open with my commentary and then the caller's questions and interaction drives the rest of the show. And you don't know show. what they're going to be coming no, up with, I have no idea. so you can't prepare for that. Interview. I have no idea. And uh, and you can tell just with a couple of interviews we've had so far, if I just have a line or two, I can talk for a while <laughs> yeah. about that. Uh, so that's how I pre- prepare. And my teachings, I, I have like 30 or 35 talks that I, I kind Kind of give as people want me to give them, so I, I don't have to keep coming up with a new servant every week. I think that what I do personally, though, is I have to work hard at. Um, I, I should I have to not work hard so much as be uh, intentional about my own organic connection to God in my prayer time, in my Bible reading time. I I need to read thoughtfully through Scripture, and I'm a big guy about reading in context, reading for the teaching that's given there, but I need to read not just quickly get the chapter done so I can check this off, but I need to read thoughtfully. So I need to understand what the writer's trying to communicate and see what in here represents something substantial for me to chew on and to find some life in. And uh, so my my prayer time takes me is mixed in with my Bible reading. So as I'm reading, I'm praying, and uh, and I see something, and there I need to say, you know, Lord, this this is something I need help with, you know, or, or and, along. And that I've line. heard you say that you're not the kind of Christian who's particularly experienced sort of dramatic hearing the voice of God type, no. type moments. That's no. not the way God has communicated well, with you. Well, I, I actually don't think that's the standard for most Christians, taken as a biblical question, though I do think God speaks dramatically sure. and does phenomenal things, but I don't think that's the standard. And in my case, yes, you're right, that isn't the way God has chosen to work. Uh, I think I'm like most Christians who draws from the teaching of the Scripture and this ineffable sense that the Holy Spirit is there with us, comforting us, helping us, teaching us, using circumstances and the Word to guide us, and all of a sudden we find ourselves someplace. Well, as you we were did. saying at the beginning, you exactly look back right. and, and you can see the path yes, kind of right. within God's mind, but not in yours. Right, but that doesn't mean that my, my, my emotional life with God is sterile. I mean, we all have plenty enough trials and difficulties <laughs> to drive us through the thro- to the throne of grace where we, we, we seek God out to, to comfort and to give us wisdom and to... Um, you know, to be close to us, and that's very difficult to talk about because I think we sometimes it's characterized like divine romance, and I just think that's the wrong kind of metaphor to use, and it, and it sets up some Christians for feeling inadequate because they don't feel like they're that their relationship with God is like a romance, and so what's wrong with them? It's, a relationship with God is utterly unique. There is no other relationship that's like it, and there is an affective, subjective element to it, but to try to compare it to those kinds of things, I think, is a huge mistake, and we set ourselves up for a fall. Talk a little bit, just as we, in the, in the final moments we've got together, about family life for you, Greg. Mm-hmm. You're, you're married, you've got children. Oh, yeah. And my wife is sitting she right is. over here in <laughs> Hello, studio. Here. Uh, so I have to be uh, really honest with you. Uh, but I would be anyways. Um, uh, in our family, I have not... Some, some public figures, their families are public figures also in the pejorative sense. That is, they feel like part of the ministry and all eyes are on mm. them. I don't think that's 
ever been the case in our in our life. I think that my wife, though I I work hard like any other person, and as a wife, then she has to deal with that. Um, I don't think that she is somehow overshadowed by the ministry and feels that pressure. I, I'm watching her eyes now to see if she's going to nod or, or, or glare. But uh, my my sense is, and the same thing with my children. I'm just popping to my children, and I, they see me on TV once in a while, hear the radio show, and that's just ordinary for us. But it, it I don't envision this being yeah. a problem for them. Um, uh, so I. I uh, the ministry is my calling. It isn't my family's calling, and I, I I think that that helps them. However, it's like any other profession where you where you you're a breadwinner and you take the work seriously. Um, you want to make a difference. Then this takes time. And I, I, last year I was on the road eleven days out of the month, and so that's a bit of a challenge. And uh, my family has been really fabulous about that. One thing that helps a little bit is that when I'm home, I'm usually home. Mm-hmm. I'm working out of my home, mm-hmm. but at least my body's there, yeah, and I can yeah. pick up the kids from school yeah. and that kind of thing. So that tends to soften that a little bit. But um, I think that there there is a reality of spiritual warfare that every Christian worker faces. Every Christian faces, but workers are more in the targets. And this the attacks can come from all different directions, and they aren't just uh, in the so-called professional direction. You can get shot from this, hit from the flank. Mm. And so I think it's good for every Christian to be aware that attack and difficulties and trial can come from anywhere, and we have to be vigilant uh, that we see that element. And, and I know this is—I'm sure this—I don't know you that well, Justin, obviously, but um, I know you're Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, hearing everything you're saying and applying yeah. it to my own situation yeah. uh, that—, that I think that's always the danger, whatever mm-hmm. your area of Christian ministry or mm-hmm. leadership, that, that you forget—if you forget the family side— yeah everything else will crumble. Yeah, and I think there's a, if I could add this right here at the end real real quickly, there's a temptation to think that if somebody is clever in a discipline, like say apologetics or theology, that they're clever in life. And that's, it's just not true. You know, I have to, I, I get out from behind this microphone or I step down from the podium and then I have to live my Christian life with the with the important people in my life, my my wife, my two little girls. I have an eight and a five year old, so that's a certain. It's got its own demands on this sixty year old, sixty three year old papa. Right. Um, uh, so, but I have to get down and just be like anybody else, working my life out and trying. And, and to how make well it you can show the divinity of Christ isn't going to matter too much to your three year old at this no, point. No, that's a, <laughs> only in, in so much as that the Christian life is incarnate in me, and I'm of being course. a good ambassador yeah. to them, and yeah. I do take that seriously. It's been great having you with me today, Greg. Thank Pleasure. you for sharing some of your wisdom, um, you. sharing some of your background and your life story. I, st- I do hope I can come back sometime. We'll we'll let you in, All right, I think. Thank <laughs> uh, thanks very much. Greg Kokel joining me today. If you want to find out more about Stand to Reason, their ministry, the podcast, and all the resources that are available, do visit the website www.str.org. How Santa Stole Christmas. In the latest Premier Christianity magazine, find out how Christians can win Christmas back again from the over-commercialised version The Shop Sell Us. Plus, could artificial intelligence spell the end of the human race? We chart the rise of the robots. Five people whose dreams led them to fate tell their story. Claire Musters shares how a disastrous decision forced her to take off the mask in church and meet John Mark Comer, the pastor to millennials reaching America's most secular city. All that plus much more. Get your free edition at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity. I'm Ruth Jackson and I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Welby-Roberts, author of a new book called I Thought There Would Be Cake. Good afternoon. Now, you've written this brilliant book. Thank you. Really an excellent book. And one of the opening lines says this, Being an adult looked to me like a party where there was shed loads of cake and then I grew up and was very disappointed. What was it about grown-up life that so disappointed you? Um, I think it's just the fact that it was like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Adult life is a lot harder than your parents make it look. Or my parents made it look. Or is it? I don't know that it is. You know, I think you only see the bits that you want to see as a mm-hmm. child. You know, you see the freedom and the control and the grown-upping. And then 
you get there and you're like, oh, well, this is harder. So yeah, I think it was literally just life stepped in and suddenly it was complicated and I didn't have someone to do everything for me and to be in charge of everything for me. I had to, you know, manage bills and manage my health and be in relationship with people and have a job and all of that. And I think I just was a bit taken aback by it. Probably just very naive. And obviously a lot of your book revolves around your struggle with anxiety, with depression, with crippling self-doubt. Do you remember how old you were when those things began to surface? I think we all have self-doubt to a certain degree. You know, I think actually it's it's kind of ingrained in society and maybe I'm putting things into people's heads. But actually I'm yet to meet somebody who doesn't in some way relate to not overly loving yourself and having bits about yourself that you compare to others or needing affirmation or what whatever it is you know I think I'm yet to meet anyone who doesn't have that and I think that that's a society thing really we're always told we should be better than we are and we're not ever going to be able to meet that standard and so we have to work quite hard at that and so I think that that makes it hard and I think if you've got a tendency to kind of see the very worst in yourself then that makes it even harder because suddenly you've got all of these doubts and fears and and questions about am I as pretty as her am I as intelligent as him as am, am I as fit as them am I you know what what is it that you want to be and and if you can't match up to that and you have a tendency towards depression or anxiety then that's going to make it a lot harder to understand and absorb and live with and obviously for you it wasn't just your kind of average teenage self-doubt all of that it was underlying mental health problems what are some of the telltale signs of those issues that's tricky because it's quite independent really um individual sorry and i i don't know when mine really kicked off I think I was probably about 16 17 and before that I still had crippling self-doubt so I think regardless of mental health problems teenagers are gonna really struggle to deal with themselves and the pressures of social media and things can make that worse but I mean you know some of the signs you know lots of people talk about the classic sign of withdrawing but I I didn't really do that I just withdrew into my head but carried on as I had been outwardly so sometimes it's really hard to see which is entirely unhelpful really but I think for me the thing is about making an environment where people feel able to talk and to express those feelings without fear of ridicule or anything like I remember very much as a teenager you know I really didn't particularly like how I looked and if I ever mentioned that to somebody they'd say oh don't be silly you're you're beautiful and actually that I found that really really unhelpful because I wanted to be able to talk about my insecurity but I learned that I couldn't because I was thin and that is the desirable thing to be and therefore I shouldn't complain Mm. um and I didn't have spots and that was desirable so I shouldn't complain and I, I you know I learned to internalize a lot of that and therefore a lot of other doubts I had about myself as well and so I think creating an environment where if somebody says to you I, I'm struggling with this not going oh don't be silly you're you're wonderful because actually whilst you're trying to say something that's helpful people need to be able to express themselves and they need to be able to talk through their doubts and actually having that conversation saying well, what is it that makes you think that you know and and trying to work it through so they are learning how to work through those doubts questions fears for themselves is essential but that's not very helpful for spotting stuff because actually that is quite an individual thing would one of the things be to legitimize their concerns their worries things like that rather than brushing them away to say i understand this is how you're feeling why are you feeling like that yeah you know it's not about saying yeah you're you're but ugly it's it's about saying what makes you feel that way what is it how can we address this how can we journey in this together and you know looking for inspirational people because actually you know as a teenager you're not really going to be desperate to talk to your parents about it but looking for people who talk about those kinds of things in a helpful and powerful way that that they might be able to relate to Um, younger people generally the older they are the more distant they they feel is my general recollection I haven't been youth for a while but (laughs) you know I think having people that they can relate to who have been through it who understand it and who are journeying but not dismissing it because there is nothing worse than dismissing it that's how you internalize it for people and that's how they get into a much more dangerous situation and what should we do if one of our own children or a young person in our youth group or, or even a friend we, we think we've spotted those signs of depression what what would you recommend you do in that situation i think it depends on your relationship with them yeah. if you have a relationship where you can start to talk with them and they're going to open up then that's good if you're the parent then talking about doctors 
Um, but I think the first thing is is encouraging them to talk. So creating a space for them to talk. It's it's very difficult if someone doesn't want to talk. Um, and at that point, you just have to be very present. You can't put pressure on because that's going to make things harder. But at the same time, you need to be on it. You need to be aware. You need to be watching. And you need to be engaging. And I think, you know, not saying buck up or cheer up or, you know, it's not that bad or you've got it so good and you don't know how lucky you are. You know, there's children starving in Africa or but allowing people to feel safe talking about it. There are loads of resources out there that you can find. Mind and Soul website has quite a few that you can look at, which will help you in working out how to engage. But as someone who has lived with it it's the dismissing the fear of being dismissed as not really deserving to be depressed because I've got a really nice life that prevented me from talking to people so I suppose there's the emotional side of of all of that emotionally supporting someone legitimizing what they're feeling giving them the space to feel those things are there practical things that if you are a youth worker a parent a friend a partner of someone that's struggling with these things one of the things that you talked about in the book which I loved was when a friend invited you to a party but said actually rather than coming to this crazy party that she knew you wouldn't feel comfortable in why don't you come for dinner with me kind of instead and and you talked about the fact that actually that was a really kind thing for her to do because she was there was a practical thing that she could do were there things like that that we can be putting in place I mean you need to show that you're you're there and you're available in a non-pressured kind of way so inviting people to things if you record if you begin to see a pattern that someone always turns down groups but never turns down coffee then make it a coffee thing you know make it a one-on-one thing or if they always turn out down one-on-one make it a group thing you know just often people will say no and they don't want to impose their company on you or they don't want to get out so you know just texts is a really practical thing you know I've noticed that when I'm really ill people some people will start to drop off because what can you do you know she's not replying to my messages she's not around she doesn't come to stuff you know she's pulled back well yeah people with severe depression will pull back that is the very nature of the illness they don't want to impose themselves on you because they're such a burden so even though they're pulling back just make clear that you're still there drop in a card into their house send them a text you know I had one friend who she just did the most amazing thing because all she'd do was she sent me a text once a week every week how you doing you know usually with a little joke and I'd reply sometimes I wouldn't reply other times so do you but think I consistency is an important thing consistency as well? and long-term nature you know these illnesses they're long-term mm. they're not going to be fixed quickly don't expect a quick fix don't say let's pray for it and then when someone's still miserable go but Jesus loves you that doesn't help it doesn't make any difference journey with people go the long term sure offer prayer but don't let that be your only solution or even necessarily the very first one you offer because for somebody who feels that God has forgotten them asking them to take something to God doesn't always help and show them demonstrate practically that God cares and that God is engaging with them and that God loves by being God to them you know Jesus he is the person who would come to your house even if you just wanted to sit and watch tv in your pajamas and not force you out that that is who Jesus was so so be that person and be consistent be long term and don't think that it's going to be over in a month or two months you know I've had it now for well it's been diagnosed for 12 years but probably had it a few years before that and it doesn't look to be on its way out this is something I'm living with you know in the same way my husband lives with diabetes this is this is the life I'm living and it's the people who've been consistent the people who have been the long long term friends and the people who haven't expected me to suddenly be fine who are the people that I trust and I go to for prayer because I know that they're going pray with my best interest in heart, at heart and you talk about prayer and how we can be God in those situations are there really unhelpful things when it comes to talking about God to someone with depression and are there things that are really helpful or does it depend on who the person is it depends on who the person is and what they need I think the longer that someone's been living with it the more you shouldn't talk about healing I only talk about healing with a select few people not because I don't believe God can and will heal me but because I've been really badly burned by people saying I feel God's telling me that he's going to heal you today and you're like well that's great but you could keep that to yourself in case he doesn't why raise my hope you know I'm, I'm struggling to find hope as it is and, and, and you're coming in on a one-off and not having to journey with me long term. And so there are people, you know, I still pray for healing every single day. And I still trust that God can and and hopefully will heal me. But he hasn't yet. And I think, you know, that is incredibly unhelpful. And also, you know, talking about God's love and the joy of the Lord and all of that, whilst those are all very real things that we need to understand, talking about them as a solution to depression you know I understand the joy of the Lord I've experienced the joy of the Lord I've been shown his joy and you know he's shared it with me but that hasn't taken away 
my illness. And I don't think it's incompatible to have depression and understand the love and joy of the Lord. In fact, I think quite the opposite. I think it helps you because you're in a very dark place or it can help you. Not everyone experiences that, but you're in a very dark place and God comes in anyway. We've sort of talked about the things that aren't helpful. Are there things that are helpful in a context of talking about God? I think it depends on your relationship with the person, honestly. I think, like I said, you know, I'll pray with my husband, I'll pray with my closest friends um, very happily and I will trust them to understand the the significance of my Mm. asking for prayer because it is significant. You know, there's only so many times you can get hurt by God not answering your prayers in the way that you hope before you don't want a stranger to pray or someone who doesn't know you very well to pray. But also, you know, look to the Bible. The Bible is full of very practical things that you can do, you know. People often come in with a verse that's going to fix everything (laughs) or an example of how Jesus did this or a friend who was healed in this way, which I always find very unhelpful. But actually, you know, look at the road to Emmaus. Jesus doesn't come in and go, you're idiots. Well, he he does slightly, but (laughs) but, you know. It's a lot more subtle than (laughs) that. It's a lot more subtle than that. Uh, But he he journeys with them. He walks with them and he's spends hours explaining things at their pace and allowing them an opportunity to digest it to understand it to ask questions and to seek gently quietly gradually and softly he doesn't ram it down their throats he he allows them to understand at their own pace and that's something we can do we can give bible as example but but you know ask people questions rather than saying this is the meaning of it ask them what do you think this means and and journey and and do it in relationship you know would you like to study some bible with me i've got i've got some bits that that might help you but we can talk about them together you can ask me questions we can explore meaning and and I can ask you questions do that but also Job you know God rebuked Job's friends through Job he didn't even do it direct he said you know tell them they're idiots you pray for them before me because actually you know he was cross with them because they'd come in and said what did you do wrong so be very wary of blaming someone. Yeah. It is not them that has caused distance from God. And there isn't distance from God. God is right there with them. And if you think that he isn't, then you need to go back to the Bible because it's right there. And then, you know, Elijah, the name of my son, <laughs> after a great prophet. You know, Elijah, he was suicidal. He ran from witnessing the glory of God revealed before all of Israel. You know, God rained down fire when he asked for it. I mean, that kind of a miracle is what, you know, it would be amazing for God not literally to rain down fire necessarily but you know to respond to us so directly (laughs) Um, and so obviously and yet he ran away and said God just let me die and God was very practical you know he sent an angel to feed and water him not like a plant like provide water (laughs) (laughs) just soak him (laughs) there you go this will make you feel better you know and he did that until he was ready to go on and even then he wasn't better he wasn't happy and skipping and joyful you know he got to the next place and he was like stop still you know and and but that again the bible offers us examples of things we can do to support people practically don't tell them that it's all their fault journey with them help them to understand slowly and steadily at their own pace and practically support them food drink friendship texts whatever it is that they need ask them what they need because generally people know yeah that's a really helpful thing isn't it because i think sometimes we get a little bit scared don't we you think oh gosh they've got depression they've got anxiety i don't want to do the wrong thing i don't want to say the wrong thing and sometimes that can end up with not doing anything but actually, or with saying the wrong thing yeah because people saying, are being yeah. so tiptoey that you're just like for goodness sake just ask me what i need yeah because i don't feel brave enough to say to you actually what you're doing is really unhelpful yeah. in your tiptoeing you're being so precious about me that you're not allowing me to actually be be who I am and be bold and be brave. You're you're making me someone who needs to be protected and comforted and, and wrapped in cotton wool. I don't need that. I just need you to say, what can I do to help you? Because I know what I need and I'll ask for it. And sometimes I wouldn't have known and I wouldn't have known where to start. And I'd have said, I, I don't know. At which point you say, okay, should we meet for a coffee next yeah. week? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Well, I'll text you. How about I just text you yeah. and we see how we're doing. We have a bit of a text chat and we can gradually build up. But ask people and let them say, I don't know. And if- that's quite dis- disarming as well isn't it because if you don't know what to do and they don't really know what they want then you're kind of both in it together aren't yeah. you and you can say oh well this is going to be an adventure <laughs> yeah. you know let's let's just journey this together yeah. let's walk it i'm going to be here sometimes you're not going to want me here and, and so i'll just stand quietly behind you yeah and you i'm know? here if you need me you know just know that i am here and i will text you every week just to say i'm here you don't have to reply you know giving people the freedom not to have to be polite yeah. and on form and and engaged 
but saying, you know, it's okay if you don't reply. That's fine. You know, I, I'm still going to text you. I'm yeah. still going to engage with you. And when you're ready to engage with me, even if one week you do and the next week you don't, that's absolutely fine. I will rejoice when you do and I'll pray when you don't. And that's the journey we're going to go on. And somebody being there, that's what you need to know. Because at some point you're going to go, I really need to talk about this. And you're going to go, who do I talk to? Oh, I'm going to talk to them. Yeah, because they're always there. They're always there and they're always saying here if you need me. Yeah. And when you need them, then, then that's the person you go to. But if you feel that they're going to put pressure on you, if you feel that they're going to say the wrong thing, if they, if you feel that they're going to try and give you loads of advice rather than just letting you talk, you're not going to go there. Taking a completely different turn, one of the things you talk about in your book is social media and that how that kind of adds to the pressure of comparison and, and all of that. And we obviously grew up in an environment kind of without computers, sort of without... We had MSN when I was 16. Well, exactly. It was well exciting. You know, My mum hated it. She was like, why do your friends keep talking to me when I'm on the computer? Exactly. The little pop-up in the yeah. corner. But we didn't have mobile phones. And in some ways, no. we grew up in a much less pressured environment than a lot of Except our young people. Except we got those, what are they, Nokia 3310 or whatever? And I had snakes. Snake. Yeah, that was just the biggest oh, distraction so ever, wasn't it? <laughs> but we didn't have no. that constant pressure, the constant bullying, the Instagram where everything is filtered. How on earth would you even begin to talk to a young person who's going through all of the difficulties that we went through growing up, but with the added pressure of all of that from the digital world? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I know someone who's written a great book on it. <laughs> Bex Lewis, yeah. um, Dr. Bex Lewis, she has written a book on that and actually she knows so much more than me about it I know that I'm really nervous about doing this with my children you know and I think the generation of parents the people who have been parenting this last kind of 10 years worth of teenagers they deserve you know so much credit because they've been doing the research they've been having to learn as they go and you've had all these things like the statistics on how many kids who have been told they're not allowed on social media who have secret social media accounts is staggering I don't want to do that I, I don't want my child to be having secret social media accounts so I won't ban him from social media but how do you navigate that I don't know but I think for me what I'd like to learn to do um, and obviously I'm quite a few years off he's only 10 months old he's not on Twitter yet Um, (laughs) that's what you think (laughs) yeah well he's actually got a secret one (laughs) (laughs) you know is talk to him about it as he grows up and I think relationships are really difficult and young people need an outlet and that is where it is I think I would want to as he grows up be talking to him about online bullying and stuff like that so he's prepared for it talk to him about pornography which again you know through social media is now very widely shared with young people mm. and be engaging in these subjects with him from a younger age and sharing sharing the joy of social media because I really enjoy it you know mm. I, I sure you get bullies but actually you also get community you get like-minded people from all over the world that you can chat to you can learn so much about different different cultures and different understandings of the world and I think that's a really good thing for young people and I suppose actually if you're struggling with depression and you're you're feeling kind of housebound because you you can't get out there actually finding community on, online is a well I mean thing. I was doing my pregnancy I was pretty much housebound because I had chronic fatigue and I had severe exhaustion on top of that from the pregnancy so I was actually housebound by the end and social media was my lifeline it's how I lived it's how I had community and you know I really struggle with people saying oh just come off social media if it's bad for you no that's not the answer we don't run away from things that are new just simply because they can be used for for harm we engage with them and we work out what the benefits are and what the dangers are and we talk about that with young people not in a patronizing way but to be honest we have to learn from young people as much as they're learning from us because they understand social media better than us in terms of they know all the sites they know the pressures better young people now will have a completely different experience of social media to what I've had so I can't necessarily teach them everything I need to have a conversation I need to to journey and for me everything is about journey and relationship Mm. you know when you've got a good relationship with somebody then you can talk about these things and and you can ask them you know why why do you keep going back there if people are so mean to you and they might have a very good reason or it might be based in self-doubt and self-loathing and I think it's just about tracking that and it's a lot simpler to say than to do. (laughs) So Bex Lewis's book Parenting in a Digital Age yes there's also um, a really good book by Catherine Hill from Care for the Family she's just brought out a book called Left to the own devices so I would highly recommend both of those books. Now one of the chapters in your book, I can't actually say the word on radio unfortunately, (laughs) but it's effectively (laughs) all about taking on people's baggage. Your rubbish, my rubbish. Rubbish, there we go your rubbish, my rubbish. (laughs) So it's all about not taking on problems that kind of aren't yours to bear. How do we begin to do that, to let other people's baggage be theirs? I think it's about understanding boundaries firstly Mm. um, and understanding that a boundary isn't a lack of love in fact it, it is a declaration of love like the more of other people's rubbish 
challenge that you take on to yourself, the less you can help them because you're too busy being emotionally invested and involved. And, and for me, certainly it gets into my head and, you know, I'm like, oh, this is so awful. What are we going to do? How am I going to help? And actually to have that emotional boundary in where I say, actually, this is your issue. I want to support you in it, which means I can't be overburdened by the emotional weight of it, which means that I need to step back and allow myself to observe your emotional suffering so that I can help you through it. If I am living your emotional suffering with you, whilst it might seem very nice because I obviously care so much, it's not practically helpful. And that doesn't mean that we don't engage with the fact that it is very painful for somebody. And it doesn't mean that we don't feel it because I think, you know, we have to feel it. We're human. It's about not letting it dominate you and control you. And I I have got to point many times in my life where, you know, I've been so engaged in someone else's suffering that it's actually severely impacted my mental health and I haven't been able to help them at all. So I would rather not engage to that degree with their suffering so that my mental health stays stable so that I can actually be a support and a rock for them. And I think that all comes down to boundaries and recognising that it's not a lack of love, it is actually love to say, now I'm going home and I'm not going to think about this for the evening because I need to protect myself and my relationship with my husband and my family in order that when I see you again tomorrow or next week or whenever, I can give you my full undivided attention and not feel like you're crushing me and not have to pull back from you because I can't bear the weight of your pain. And a huge part of your book is about how you feel affirmed. And I suppose that balance between how you feel and how you know God feels about you and that kind of balance. How would you say as a Christian, as a mum, as a friend, how do you get that affirmation from God and, and try and listen to that voice stronger than you're listening to what your own voice is saying? That is a very good question. <laughs> I wish I had the answer. I think for me, it's about every day thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there isn't a quick fix. There isn't an answer. I Some people might be absolutely genius at it, but I reckon they're in their 80s at least. <laughs> because And they're super holy. Uh, do you know Father Aniro Cantalamessa? Yes. Like you look at him and you're like, dude, I think I can see Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just so inspiring. But I think that that comes from years, not of a suffering free life, but from years of holy practice, of prayer and, and going back to the Bible again and again and again and again and again. Every time you doubt, every time you question, every time you fear, every time, you know, and going back and, and just grounding yourself in that truth and grounding yourself in prayer. God doesn't promise to fix it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't promise that we're going to live lives free of suffering. He doesn't promise that nothing's going to go wrong. He promises that he loves us. He promises that, that he will be with us. He promises a counsellor who will comfort us, who will give us wisdom, who will help us. We have to engage with him in that, but he doesn't promise that it's never going to hurt. And I think accepting the pain as a part of life and accepting that God understands that pain. I mean, look at Jesus's life. It wasn't exactly a walk in the park. And accepting that, you know, no matter how much we might doubt it, God does love us. And going back every time to that, I assume that one day it'll sink in hopefully (laughs) and you obviously recently became a mum yes and obviously that brings with it lots of joy but it also brings a whole heap of struggles more comparison not only with yourself but now with how your child is doing compared to everyone else's perfect (laughs) children what are the big joys and struggles and how has that affected your depression your anxiety all of those things I really struggled with the first four months I didn't particularly enjoy that because it was so hard and so overwhelming and so permanent you know I was like "I I wanted this child but he's here forever yeah. like <laughs> why would you get out of my house <laughs> i just want half an hour please and quite isolating um, as well very isolating mummy friends i have discovered are the best thing in the world <laughs> i have never in my life made friends so quickly because you know you're like oh you've got a baby poo sick <laughs> food breastfeeding bottle feeding you know you just have all these conversations and you go home and you're like all i've talked about is poo and sick and i feel so good <laughs> <laughs> but i suppose that's the empathetic thing isn't yeah it? you know exactly what I'm going through because yeah. you're going through and, it um, and you know I think it really had a big effect on my mental health I feel quite happy and very depressed and very anxious all mm. at once um, he's an absolute delight I adore him he's ridiculously cute quite naughty very cheeky very stubborn might be a handful um, <laughs> but you know he brings me a lot of joy and he's shown me a lot about love and about value when you don't really contribute much I love him unconditionally and he does nothing <laughs> other than roll around and bag his head so you know that's really nice because it makes you understand or it's helped me understand a bit more about value 
even if I haven't achieved anything. But also there are so many things within parenting that are new and that are different and that you have no idea what to do. You know, my anxiety has been all over the place. My moods have been erratic at best. It's been a real challenge and a real joy for my mental health, you know, both helped it and hindered it. Which is a complete contradiction, but I think that that's what mental health is. It is just simply contradictions. It's quite often the dichotomy of holding yeah. those two very yeah. extreme emotions, yeah. isn't it? Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if we want to find out more about your book, where shall we go? Well, my book is called I Thought There Would Be Cake, and uh, you can get it in Christian bookshops and I'm sure online. My blog is catherinewellby.com. <laughs>